Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Paris and Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Content note, this episode discusses eating disorders, disordered eating, body shaming and the cult of diets. Now, for those of us socialised in a patriarchy, which, spoiler, is pretty much all of us, what should be the simple act of self-love can seem like an impossible trek. From a young age, capitalism teaches women that we're basically hateful in every way. Our bodies are too much or not enough. We'll never be pretty enough, remembering that pretty is a construct designed by other people to keep women distracted. We have too much sex or not enough sex. We laugh too loudly. Our teeth are too big or crooked or gappy. We need to smile more. We need to smile less. We need to be nicer. We need to take care of ourselves, but not too much because that's vain. We need to eat. I love a girl who eats. Don't pick the salad. Girls who eat salad are boring, but remember to always maintain your figures, ladies. Keep yourselves in check and nice and tidy. Even though we also know men don't like a bag of bones, they like a little bit of meat, something to grab onto. Am I right? Oh my God, fucking exhausting trying to keep up. Imagine if we could bypass all of that and just get straight to the part where we could look in the mirror and say, there goes a hot bitch who's worthy of love, my love. And that's where this week's guest comes in. 
She's a body love activist, a woman of colour, a mom, an HR lady, a writer and a real-life big sister who has a range of skills under her very sparkly belt, film production, writing and even a half-finished degree in hairdressing. She is the one and only April Watson, a.k.a. the Bodzilla. April, welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I feel like one of the best things, I often say this in the intro, but one of the best things about doing this podcast, which, you know, I want to talk about your podcast plans soon too, but one of the best things about doing this podcast is that I literally just get to scroll through all of the women who I love and whose accounts I follow and um, who I really admire deeply and just invite them to come and have an hour-long chat with me. So thank you so much for agreeing. Oh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, obviously the feeling is ridiculously mutual. Um, My favourite part about social media is connecting with people and also seeing people that I know in real life do things that they definitely don't do in public and say things that they would not normally say maybe at a family dinner, but on Instagram they're talking about things that are important to them and I love that. I'm like, yes, be your real self in a fake world. I love that. Well, do you know what? It's really interesting because we're going to talk about self-love and, um, you know, the journey to self-love and, and whether or not we can actually ever fully make it there because of the deep conditioning of capitalism and patriarchy. But one of the things that I'd love to chat briefly with you about as well is that, um, you know, Instagram has, you and I both love using Instagram, I'm sure for many of the same reasons in that not only do we get to connect with other excellent women, but we also get to indulge. We get to marry like our political lives and our political beliefs and passions with stuff we just fucking like to do. And I think that there's, it's, it's important for us to talk about the sexism that is attached to critiques of Instagram. Not, I'm not saying that Instagram is a perfect platform at all, but because a lot of what people associate with Instagram is women talking about stuff but also kind of like posting photos of themselves, automatically it becomes this really vain, self-indulgent sort of place where nothing serious can happen and where people can speak of it really witheringly. And I really fucking hate that. I do think that it's important, and I've reflected on this, especially this week, of course, um, and and the last couple of weeks, that we still have to be able to be on these platforms and indulge, as you say, in the things that we love, such as looking at other girls' great outfits. Uh, Hello, Mm -hmm. You and I are just like, oh, that jacket. Oh, yes, hello. Like the visual part of Instagram is the whole the whole thing, what you're seeing, but then when you're able to take in what it's actually about through the writing and the, the captions of the people who are posting. Um, so many people that I know who use Instagram regularly are only, they refer to themselves as lurkers because they're just kind of taking in a steady stream of what they want to see rather than what's being fed to them, say, on television or through other yeah. media because you can curate it. But there's also that danger of curating yourself into a corner, um, so to speak, which then means that you're left only seeing those things that, as you refer to people, sort of say, oh, Instagram's just for, you know, girls who just want to post selfies. I'm post myself if I want. But also there's so much more to it than that. Um, I mean, the countries have had revolutions through social media. So I think it's quite fair to say that there's more to it than selfies but also screw you, I can post a selfie if I want. Totally. And, you know, one of the things, uh, particularly in the last few weeks in terms of, um, I guess, following content in regards to Black Lives Matter, um, both, you know, abroad and also in a local context, is that, you know, when you work the algorithm to your favour, you like things and you 
then start to see more of those things. So I feel like the snowball effect of actually using this platform that has so typically been associated with vanity and vapidity is actually where I'm getting a lot of information from at the moment. And again, like I want to go back to that idea that somehow, uh, you know, one of the ways in which women's political engagement has been dismissed and ridiculed is you know, and the purpose is to dismiss it and ridicule because no one wants women to be politically engaged because if we become politically engaged or if any marginalised group becomes politically engaged, then we become dangerous and we become a danger and a threat to the system and the status quo. So one of the ways in which uh, women are dismissed and ridiculed is by associating, you know, like, oh, she posted a selfie, therefore she can't be a serious person. I mean, like, I'm not the first person to I'm just repeating an argument here now that, you know, people have very correctly said that no one ever looked at all of the great, the great male artists throughout history and their self-portraits and said, oh, it's just a bit of a selfie, isn't it? Um, but this idea that somehow women, we, because the, the male gaze and patriarchy operates always as placing us under the spotlight for other people to determine the worth and the value of, the moment that we flip the camera on ourselves and say, well, this is how I'm presenting myself and I have control over this image. And you know what? I actually like being, um, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about lately is the way in which our our participation in objectification can never by in some people's minds can never ever be seen as you know quote unquote empowering or even something that we have control over like all of these things that we take enjoyment in because capitalism and patriarchy has co-opted them at some point and used them to kind of attempt to control us like that somehow there can be nothing positive found in those things, that there can be there can be no enjoyment, that any engagement with them at all is just capitulation to the system. And I find that really problematic because what it ultimately ends up doing is forcing us into a situation where we say, well, to in order to be taken seriously, we have to behave in a way that men behave. We have to behave like men in order to be seen as serious people. Um, I watched Michelle Obama, uh, the Becoming documentary on Netflix, and it talked about the way that when she engaged in the campaign, they then looked at her and they said, right, if she wants to act like Barack Obama, we're going to attack her like Barack Obama. And and so then she started to behave very seriously and to not go off script, to never talk off the cuff, um, because she couldn't be displayed as someone who could think independently of her husband for a start. Stupid. Um, but also that, uh, to yeah, to be able to give voice to his campaign and his, you know, um, policies and things like that. She could only do that in the way that was, that people were willing to accept hearing it, which was not through fun, frivolity, a purple dress, flicked hair. You know, she had to be very serious, her very straight, not worn naturally, all of those things. Um, she somehow had to operate under this kind of scheme but at the same time if we take that scheme and say right so you want to see this or you know you, you get good engagement from a certain type of post so then you post another one well then that's all you do so um if you post one political thing well you're either being off brand or you have to only then post political things you can't then go back to posting things about what you like like fashion or makeup every woman should be allowed to simply engage with whatever she likes whenever she likes however she likes but somehow we're still left being told that you, if you do it, we don't like you. And if you don't do it, we don't like you. Well, then what? I'll just do whatever I want anyway. Mm. Speaking of doing whatever you want, I want to get on to uh, your, uh, it's such a 
a kind of a cringy word to use, your journey. Um, oh, my most hated term. Oh, well, second most hated term. Um, but, yeah, definitely is one of those. <laughs> what else What else are you going to call it? My rise to awesomeness. Um. <laughs> yeah, you started a, a series on uh, of writing on Medium called Fat Girls Shouldn't. Mm. And it's, you've posted the first one and it's part one in a series of what you say is, you know, will be an indeterminate number because... God, there's an infinite number of entries that you can make in, into that yeah. category, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, your, your first one is talking about um, the fat girls shouldn't do this and that and the the way in which fat shaming and, uh, you know, just as a disclaimer to anyone listening, this is this is clearly a sarcastic kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Fat girls shouldn't do anything. But, oh, but yes. Fat girls fat- shouldn't wear makeup and try to be political, right? <laughs> Wink. Exactly. In a fat shaming and body shaming society, uh, women's bodies have been policed in particular ways, and, and obviously, different women get extra layers of policing. And I and I want to talk a little bit about that with you as well at some point. Um, but fat girl, what what explain fat girls shouldn't? So I in my entire life have often been given direction around how I should and should not look, behave, um, eat etc um both directly and indirectly so sometimes it's literally someone um saying to me oh fat people shouldn't eat ice cream in public it's disgusting um and when i reflect on that i and and the person that said that to me i do think that was definitely their internalized fat phobia coming out because um they perceived that they themselves should not be seen eating ice cream because they felt that they were fat and that that was a bad thing um but having someone say oh that's not very healthy you know it doesn't have to be you shouldn't but that's what they're saying or um do you want to share this like it's pretty big I'm like you know I can I can eat it (laughs) watch me try um not so much these days but all of those um unspoken kind of criticisms of what I was doing so you know ordering a lot instead of a small or eating you know in a way that I was looking happy while I was eating rather than being like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that I have to nourish my body so I don't die. Um, you know, it's that Emily Blunt from The Devil Wears Prada, I just wait until I'm about to faint and then I eat a cube of cheese. Like that's supposed to be how we eat. Eating is supposed to be enjoyable and it's supposed to be about nourishing yourself, both body and mind. To me, I think that when you tell people that they shouldn't do something that they like to do that just takes away from so not just what when they eat but also the other activities that they do because suddenly everything they feel that everything they do is on display and up for criticism um and so fat girl shouldn't is a series that i want to write around the things that have happened to me because like anything that you put on online there is going, always going to be someone else that goes yes same i feel that i relate to that so i just want to be able to say to people Whatever anyone has told you you shouldn't do, do it and do it with joy and do it with no shame and just stick it to them pretty much. I have to say that when I read uh, the first entry in that, I felt a lot of stings of recognition as well. I really related hard. And, you know, um, again, I'll just repeat the content note that I put at the start of this episode because we're probably going to be straying into territory. I mean, it's it's uh, it definitely triggers me having these conversations not in a way that I can't have them but you know it's it's a very deep learning that we are kind of uh, indoctrinated into you know and for anyone who's read my book I go into it in quite great detail in my book you know that you know I've been 
I've had complicated relationship with my body for most of my life, as so many of us do. And I feel like I've overcome a lot of it, but then you you kind of get slapped in the face again with some of this recognition and you're like, wow, it's still so deeply in there. So one of the things that really spoke to me um, in your piece was the idea of, of performing how we eat for other people, you know, and uh, I think that that is probably still in me somewhere because it's so, it has been so deeply ingrained, that sort of sense that I eat, I eat differently in private than I do in public because it's just a very normalised thing for women to feel ashamed of finishing their plate, you know, that we this sort of like performance of I'm only going to eat half of what's on my plate when I'm out in public because uh, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm the kind of person that needed a whole plate of food. And when you kind of break it down like that, like in the moment and in your sort of warped mind and in the conditioning that we've been, you know, sort of grow, uh, raised in, it seems totally normal. Like it seems like a normal thing to do. You're like, well, of course I wouldn't finish my food. Um, you know, again, I'm speaking generally. Yeah, what am I, a pig? Like, you know. Yeah. yeah. But then when you break it down and you sort of like voice it out loud, you're like, that is absurd. It's completely absurd to think that, uh, you know, women in particular shouldn't be allowed to finish a plate full of food because what does it, because it indicates something about us that's negative to the world. And actually, again, in my book, one of the things that I, I talked about a lot was for me, and I'm not saying that this is everyone's experience, but I think it's probably shared by a lot of women. For me, that um, I felt so little control in my adolescence over the way that, that the world that I was living in was changing for me, my kind of, uh, you know, the baptism of fire into adolescence where all of a sudden the word world becomes a lot more dangerous than it, than it maybe seemed to be before. Um, and you're certainly reminded by a lot more people that you have no worth and you have no value unless you subscribe to these this very rigid list of things. But for me, it was, you know, being able to control what went into my body was was one of the few forms of control that I had. Yeah. And I think that um, obviously I've read your books and uh, I, when reading Fight Like a Girl, I was driving, I, I do a regular commute and I was driving to work for a series of days. And I remember just crying because I was like, oh, it's not just me. Like, even though I know that it's not just me, I know that but hearing things voiced that you go oh I've been that person I have been um you know that wished that I could go away um I don't know for an inordinate amount of time and return to school and have dropped some kilos and get people go oh you look so good blah 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 like you know all that the the conversation that we um that we have with ourselves about what it would be like if we could just do x y lose weight um, get a different haircut, but, you know, like all the different ways that we could change our appearance if we could just magically, you know, whether it be um, for the long term or even when we feel down about ourselves because we haven't had our eyebrows waxed in ISO. Um, it's sort of, it's that thing of hearing someone say something and, and realising that you thought you were over it, but you're definitely not over it. Um, and I still, of course, as someone who publicly both online, in real life, um, and in my own home, talk about how it's okay to talk to your body and how it's not okay to talk to your body, still have weird thoughts about the fact that, like, you know, um, I feel happy with myself and I'm like, oh, I'm so stressed out, I can't eat anything. I'm like, oh, that's a good response. That's the right response because somehow it's been ingrained in me that 
stress eating is negative and that makes you a weak person. Whereas um, if you if you're so stressed out that you can't eat and you lose weight, that that's positive somehow. Which mm-hmm. when again when you say it out loud, it sounds actually stupid. Um, and I think that for most women, and and talking about specifically the the things that I mentioned in fat girls shouldn't that. Um, I had people respond to me who I've known my entire life as being incredibly thin people who also felt quite triggered by what I wrote uh, because they've also felt the pressure then to not eat or to, to eat more performatively because people would say, oh, don't worry about what she's ordering. She doesn't eat anything anyway. Or, you know, to to comment on the still the way they're eating, even when they fit those ideals of being a size eight and having long hair and all the things that we're apparently supposed to do as women, um, which we are both clearly not doing with our hairdos. Um, but, yeah, that, that even women who, who conform to ideals still can't eat comfortably um, because even then it's, they're, you know, not like other girls um, when they can eat a whole slice of pizza. Oh, look at me, I'm such a rebel. So, you know, I think that doesn't it be normal to have a piece of cake. Oh, yeah, you'd be girl. Oh my goodness. I'm just like my sort of catch cry of food has no moral value. I think uh, my colleagues and friends are sick of hearing it, but unfortunately it just comes out now. I can't stop saying it. Just a reminder to people listening, your bodies are no indicator of your moral value or your worth. Your bodies are beautiful no matter what they are and they deserve love and respect and kindness. Absolutely. And so when you, yeah, when you do something, eat eat a food that maybe is sitting at the top of the food pyramid rather than the bottom of the food pyramid, that's not an indication that you now have to punish yourself. That's not um, an act that you're doing kind of to, you know, throw, throw in the face of everyone else who's eating healthy and go, oh, look at me, I'm such a rebel. You're just literally eating food. It's not, it's just as simple as that. Um, whether it's, you know, donuts or kale, it really doesn't matter. Um, but, yeah, so I, I really do think that most people view food as having much more control over them than they do over it. Well, it's like you mentioned before about, you know, it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter what your body looks like or how much you conform to very conventional beauty standards in the society that we live in. Uh, it it certainly eases your transition through that society, but it doesn't change the way that you view yourself and the self-loathing that you may have kind of learned along the way because the very function of capitalism and patriarchy is that it shifts the goalposts, that we can never actually land the goal. We can never actually make it. We can never win the game because the game is always changing the rules on us. That's so, right. And that's, and that's how it keeps us in service to the system. And no matter what, um, yeah, when you think you're enough anything, um, which we never are and that's deliberate, um, you know, there's always someone else who's more something. But what I've been loving uh, lately is that display of what enough, even when you think you are enough, what it looks like is actually that that's not real either. So those women that um, I've seen online, um, Sarah Nicole Landry, Janae Mercer, people who are the traditional thinfluencers, you know, um, even though their whole platform has always been talking about accepting their own bodies, they still pass as, you know, thin women on the street, women of, who are worthy quotation marks worthy of male attention even they are trying to say well I don't look like this either not even eat not even the people who look like this look like this so I'm happy to see that that dialogue is coming out but for so many women it's it's ingrained that they they believe that 
um, there's, there is an ideal that they can achieve, that there is a nirvana, a body nirvana that they can get to, which is it's just literally not a thing. Well, my experience as well was, you know, having been numerous different weights and sizes over the years and in my most vulnerable time when I was a teenager and I um, very unhealthily, both in body and mind, lost an extreme amount of weight um, and also was surrounded by adults who were all like, ooh, good for you, you look yeah. so good, you know, really, really fucking badly responding to what was clearly a girl in crisis in front of them yeah, and really no one thought, like, are you okay? In fact, the only one who did think to say, are you okay, was a teacher of mine, but because it was such a rare response, I couldn't even fathom what she was saying and I just, I was like, why is she harassing me like this? Because everyone else was so full of what I had done. Yeah, oh, she must be jealous. Yeah, right, she's jealous of me. Um, but the thing that I found was that, you know, I had thought like so many of us do and so many of us are, are kind of like, sold this this ridiculous lie that if you achieve the nirvana if you achieve the if you make it to the the oasis in the desert and you achieve your quote unquote perfect weight that everything will fall into your life after that everything will you'll be happy and and you will you'll no longer be crippled by crushing anxiety um none of the uh, all of my problems would go away but of course they didn't go away i just had an extra problem to worry about which was staying thin and that was you know yeah, so I, I remember writing that in my book as well, that I actually found it, you know, um, when I say I found it easy to lose weight, I don't mean that I it was done in a, in a I don't mean anything positive about that. I, I meant that, I mean that I found it easy to basically like twist my brain into behaving in ex- extraordinarily unhealthy ways in order to achieve this quote unquote goal. And once I was there, my problems magnified 10 times. Yeah, absolutely. My self-loathing actually increased. I certainly, I relate to that so much. So um, I grew up, I was always bigger. I was always one of the big girls, um, which is a term I just love. Uh, And pardon? You're a strapping girl. Oh, yeah. Oh, big boned I was and just ready for a fight. What the hell? Um, <laughs> I, I just like, what even is this? Like, what? I, yeah. So I was always big. I have been a fat person my whole life. And at 29, 30 years of age, I had weight loss surgery. And that was the last step in a number of steps towards, through and around disordered eating, um, abuse in a relationship, um, all of the things that go along with being a woman, actually, I think. Um, and so we we kind of, I had culminated in, in this decision to have weight loss surgery, lost so much weight. Oh, I even went on the Today Show because that I had hit a, a real moment of worthiness. Um, and I had been really open and talked about my weight loss surgery quite a lot, um, initially because I was still subscribing to that kind of good fatty Um, you know, oh yes, I was fat, but now I'm going to be less fat and look how not fat I am compared to how fat I was. Um, and then be able to teach other people the ways, which is like, well, get your stomach removed. It's not that hard. Like there's nothing really, I'm not in control of any of what's happening right now. So 
when I lost weight and I also was feeling like, oh, when I get to a certain goal weight, and this was perpetuated by every conversation that I had with everyone I know, when I get to a certain weight and I can buy these certain clothes from a certain place, then I'll be feel better. Um, obviously, as part of those changes, um, my emotions towards food and eating were, well, damaged. There's no other real word for it because I couldn't eat. I can eat like I could eat two mouthfuls and then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be sick um, because I had done this irreparable kind of um, change to my body, which I don't regret because it happened and it's done now. Um, but at the same time now when people ask me, would I do it? Should I do it? Will I? I just don't have an opinion on that because there's so much more to it than just saying, yeah, get a surgery. Like that's go ahead. Um, but I thought that all of my problems would disappear and, and some did like my horrible ex. Um, but at the same time, I, there was a myriad of other questions and concerns and stresses around, yeah, am I losing weight fast enough? Um, what happens if I gain weight? There's no long-term studies on what actually will happen. Um, you know, I kind of rushed into this decision thinking it was, it was my last stand against fatness. Um, which, you know, since having my son, I've gained, about 15 kilos um and I have not never been happier so you know of course that's me flying in the face of tradition because you know instead of getting thinner and being happier I've gotten a little bit fatter again and I'm happy with that but that also took time to kind of reconcile as well there was definitely a lot of work that had to be done by me to be able to see myself in a way that I went oh no, I look fine. That's, you're actually fine. So um, I do think that there's a big myth around if you change your everything, whether it be your weight, your nose, your hair, you know, whatever it might be, your attitude, um, you know, and start being more like, oh, yes, I agree, um, that things will get better because men will like you and that's, you know, the end of the line. Once all the men like you, you'll be happy again. And I just don't. Agree. Well, the thing is that men, men will in that framework, men, and I don't normally offer this disclaimer, but obviously not all men. Um, but in that in that framework, men will only like you if you achieve all the goals, but you keep your mouth shut. You know, because oh, yeah. you can be conventionally beautiful woman in the world who hits every. Uh, metric of what capitalist patriarchy desires and values in women. But if you have an opinion that challenges men and challenges male power, they'll still call you exactly the same things that they call every other woman that they hate, you know, yeah. and it, it because it's irrelevant. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So it is all about keeping us in this sort of state of keeping us in service basically to the ideal to stop us from you know, exploring what our power could look like outside of that. That's right. It wouldn't matter how thin and how perky and how luscious our locks were. If we said that we wanted to smash the patriarchy, they'd still be able to pick on our teeth or our breath or some aspect of our existence. April, should we get on to the questions? Let's talk about that. Yes, let's do it. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor April Watson are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who like wearing sparkly jackets.
Too Nice asks, I've recently jumped back on Bumble after breaking up with my boyfriend in March. I'm not looking for a relationship at all, but my problem is that I always seem to end up in them and usually with men who aren't worth it. During COVID, I've been going on virtual dates with guys and last night I had a FaceTime date with a man that was so, so nice. He was funny and we discussed feminism and politics and the global economy. He's about 10 years older than me and I found that there was a nice balance between him listening to me and then explaining slash teaching me concepts without assuming I was naive or talking over me. He also complimented me quite a lot throughout the two and a half hours. What the fuck? That we were on the phone. I I would just like to say that was her what the fuck, not my what the fuck. That we were on the phone. He sent me a message this morning and I don't know why, but I've just got the ick. He is too nice. Am I the crazy one for being turned off by how nice he is? Or is he being kind of full on for a first date, especially given we've never met and have only interacted through Bumble? SOS and thank you. April. Uh, Straight away, my first thought is, have you ever watched Big Brother? Because if you have, you know that when people can only interact in that kind of closeness, and and I think virtual FaceTime dates and COVID is very similar to this, everything becomes magnified and so that sending a text in the morning you are it is i'm kind of like uh but at the same time um any anything where something's magnified any situation where you are um kind of forced to and two hours a two-hour date where you talk constantly there's no distraction of maybe like a waiter coming over or going to the bar like it's just two full-on hours is probably the equivalent of maybe two dates um so potentially uh coming across as being too nice or too full on is symptomatic of that i also am like oh that uh, why do i feel like that sounds so cringy even though isn't that exactly what we all want um we're a bit of a conundrum i think being able to say i don't want a guy who tells me how nice he is i'm such a nice guy but also when someone is nice and shows it through their actions i'm still not sure if they're nice uh i personally think this guy sounds quite nice and the fact that he's older maybe just means that he finally learned a few things about the fact that he doesn't know everything and he should listen to other people when they're talking so the ick is i think normal but I think she should try to look past it. Mm. Okay, I'm going to do something I very rarely do, which is I'm going to advocate for the man in this scenario. <laughs> she said not all men and then this. What is happening? Is that really you? What's going on with me this week? Um, listen, firstly, I will say that I get the ick thing. Like I, I don't, I'm not saying I necessarily get the ick thing for this guy, but I totally understand that the, you know, the ick factor is something that we suffer from. And, you know, I call it the repulsion disorder. When something's going really well with someone, you really like them, and then all of a sudden you're hit by a wave of fear over what that means to like someone. And then you decide, your brain tricks you into going, actually, this person's repulsive and disgusting and I hate every single thing about them. And the thought of them touch, touching me makes me want to vomit. Now, that is a really fucked up thing that our brain does, does to us. And it does it to us to, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. It does it, I think, in my case when, you know, it, when it happens to me, it's a protection thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I fear getting hurt and I fear allowing myself to like someone a lot. So my brain goes, you don't actually like them. They disgust you. And if you can feel disgusted by them, then you can protect yourself. You can really shield yourself from ever ever having to be involved with anyone. Um, Every major relationship I've had, every person I've ultimately fallen in love with has begun with me liking them. And then when they like me back, I'm disgusted by them. 
and then I push them away and I'm I'm pretty I've been pretty awful to some people and then the ones that have this is so fucked up I can't believe I'm sharing this but maybe it'll be helpful and instructive to other people the relationships that have then worked out have been when the person involved has turned around and said you've been really fucking mean to me and I don't like it and what the fuck is your problem and I'm not going to call you anymore I'm not going to talk to you and then I'm like now they become a prize I can win I can win back their affection it is a fucked up cycle um but you know then they I've gone on to to have very deep and meaningful relationships with them so I think I can't speak for too nice here but I think in my situation what I've done is I've internalized the lessons of the patriarchy which is to say that um you know, it's not the whole treat them mean, keep them keen thing. Uh, but we, I think, have become used to men treating us badly and the ones who treat us well and the ones who are nice to us and who show an interest in us and, in fact, do all of the things that we think if we were to sit down and write a list of what we want. If we were to sit down and write a list of what we want from a relationship, say we say we like partnering with men, if we were to write a list, we wouldn't be like, well, he needs to treat me like shit. He needs to um, be really negative towards me. He needs to make me question myself all the time. He needs to make me feel um, unstable in his love. He needs to make me feel like uh, I never can fully predict how he's going to treat me on any given day. I mean, that is describing an abusive relationship. And literally none of those things sound appealing. But as we've just said, there's there's a difference between us saying to ourselves what we want and then when it happens, um, actually going along with it because obviously there is there is a high propensity for all of the things that you just said to happen in a relationship and we expect it and we're telling ourselves, okay, well, this is what's going to happen eventually anyway, so I should just put that wall up. Um, and I think that is also perpetuated by the fact that there are quite a lot of people who will just straight out prove that they are those awful people right off the bat and then still try to shout that they're a nice guy um, oh. as we sort of walk away because well, clearly we're losing because we don't know what we're missing out on. Uh, I think we do. We've just told you. Um, and also that that sense of kind of like, you know, oh, nice guys finish last, you know, and, and it being a, a thing where getting into the friend zone, side note, that's not a real place or a thing. Uh, I think it's, it's again, it's trying to keep us from talking to each other it's like when oh don't talk about your salaries because you know then they'll find out that you're not getting paid the same thing don't talk about your lives and have platonic friendships because then you'll find out that actually you're both quite nice people um and that you know for a high proportion of the population that most people are not total shit bags but unfortunately quite a lot of them are I think that this comes into or it ties in very nicely with the conversation that we've been having about self-love and about unpacking some of the messages that we've been conditioned, uh, that patriarchy has conditioned us into throughout our whole lives, unpacking them and exploring the root of them and and asking ourselves why is it that we feel the need to treat ourselves like this. Um, it, to me, it you know, when you put it down on paper and when you kind of voice it out loud, it's incredibly fucking distressing that so many women, um, probably myself included, you know, because I live in a patriarchy too, um, have come to expect that that men will treat us with sort of like a, a at least a basic level of disdain and that this is somehow aspirational in a relationship that if he treats you badly then somehow that's more appealing like why do we all feel like we're not why do we all feel like we don't deserve to spend time with someone man or woman who 
can talk to us for two and a half hours and ask us engaged questions about our interests and speak to us in a way that's not condescending and that is actually modelling equality, why do we kind of feel suspicious of that? And is it because, to me, like the answer that kind of leaps out is because we're so used to a different way of being that it's almost like I don't know how to trust it. I don't know that it's he's too nice. He's too nice to me. And when you do put it down, when you do sort of voice it out loud, loud like that, it it isn't just absurd. It also makes me feel really, really sad. Now, having said that, I would like to reiterate or to make the point that just because someone is nice to you and just because you can have a good conversation with them and just because they don't treat you like a piece of shit doesn't mean that you owe them a relationship. So there are there are perfectly valid reasons to not want to continue pursuing a relationship or, or even exploring the potential of a relationship with someone just because you had a great first date with them and they were really nice. Like you may just not be attracted to them. You may not have that pheromonal connection with them. And that is totally fine too. And the measure of how they respond to that, or, or sorry, how they respond to, to that will be the measure of who they actually are. If they say, you know what, that's cool. Like I had a great time. If you change your mind, let me know. Um, but it was really nice to meet you and I wish you luck, then they are actually genuinely a good person and you can wish them well. And if you run into them on the street one day when we're all allowed to spend time together again, which we sort of are right now, then you can have a good conversation. You can have a a, a moment of levity with them. But if they say, well, fuck you, you stupid bitch, or, you know, whatever, I was just being, uh, you know, or I'm a nice guy, I don't understand, then obviously that's telling you what you need to know. I mean, ironically, you may be more attracted to them at that point because we are all fucked up. Um, But I, you know, I also think that one of the points that she makes is that he's 10 years older than her. And as you said, April, this might mean that he's just had a bit more experience and and responds a bit more to what he thinks women want, which is actually to be treated like human beings. So maybe he's doing that. Um, So then I think, well, what, what are the men her age modeling to her? What experience is she having with men her age? And um, I mean, I guess the question here isn't so much if you're not feeling, I mean, if you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it, but maybe give it space to breathe a little bit. I mean, you say that you don't want a relationship at all and you seem very clear about that. So that's fine. Like you don't need to, and maybe that's what's kind of stressing you out, that he seems like the kind of person who might want a relationship. Um, but you can but be honest. With- casual sex partners also want to have a conversation with us. Why shouldn't we want to have a one-night stand with someone who actually knows what our last first and last name is potentially? Um, there's no reason that you can't have um either an ongoing or a one-time casual encounter with someone, whether that's sex or simply you go on a date, you make out of it, you realise you're not really into them, whatever. Um, There's no actual reason that we shouldn't be able to converse with other human beings quite reasonably about things that interest, interest us. That's called being friends. That's why... Obviously, in the case of someone like you and I, we're having a one-hour conversation via screen. We're getting right into the deep topics. We're talking as equals. Uh, and nobody finds that weird because we're both women. But suddenly, if we were to have a conversation, um, you know, with someone who was a potential sex partner, we're acting out this sort of like, it, it, is this just them pretending to like me so that we can bang? Which, of course, that has been a game for some time, multiple centuries, I imagine. Uh, but there's no reason that with the level of knowledge that people can get for themselves around what 
other people actually want from them and having conversations or being um, viewing other people's conversations. You know, Facebook's one of those great places where you can watch people interact and have no actual involvement in the conversation whatsoever um, and get an insight into what people want. And in the case of this particular situation, which I think we've both assumed is uh, heterosexual partnering up um, and I think that it's quite reasonable for men to actually care what women think if they're not a total dickhead and and we can't but we can't see past that. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the very least maybe you can have a good friendship with him. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's anything – I don't think that there's anything wrong with you for feeling like this, but I think that that feeling like this is indicative of an unhealthy uh, engagement. And I say that because that's my own engagement and I think it's unhealthy. As April said, remember that even if you pursue something really casual with people, those people should still be respectful and nice and enjoy having a conversation with you. You do not want to have something casual with someone who treats you like shit. Yeah, I mean, just knocks on the door and comes in and then comes and then goes. Yeah, and doesn't care about you. I mean, it sounds like this this guy at least would put in some effort into making sure that you enjoyed yourself, which is paramount. Yes. Career Girl writes, my question is kind of twofold. I'm looking to get onto a career track after having worked dead-end jobs for my whole life. I'm also finishing undergrad soon, which has been not a linear path. At my current job, my boss is unpredictable and abusive, which is one of the reasons I'm trying to leave. This has damaged my self-worth and made it hard to believe that I deserve better. How can I fight the imposter syndrome I feel about my schooling and the self-worth problems I'm having with my current job to land somewhere that I deserve? April, this is very much a question for you as an HR lady. <laughs> right up my street. Um, I am so disturbed to hear that there are still people who are unpredictable and what, what sounds kind of scary in workplaces. Um, I don't find it unbelievable, but I, I sort of just wish that it wasn't the case. Um, I think that when you consider your career path in relation to your schooling, like obviously you haven't made this effort for no reason. You haven't gone and learned all these things and gotten a hex debt for no reason. You must come to terms with the fact that you want to do something more. However, you also don't have to do it right away. You don't have to do it how anybody else tells you to. And you don't have to do it in the conventional way that you've been ascribed by the fact that maybe your older sister did it this way, or maybe your cousin, blah, blah, from whichever fancy schmance suburb they live in did it that way. You can simply do whatever you feel. However, it is not acceptable for this person to be so negative and for you to have these feelings about someone who um, is your supervisor or your manager or whatever, however you want to, um, you know, call it, that that's actually not acceptable. So from a HR point of view, I'm like, hmm, how do we sort that out? And obviously there are a couple of ways. Most of them involve confrontation which is very uncomfortable for most people so saying to someone how you behave in the workplace makes me feel uncomfortable sounds like this person just making an assumption from the the very short description doesn't sound like something that person would be receptive to I understand that in the current climate economically getting a new job just isn't going to be as easy as it might have been you know 12 months ago to simply say I quit and I'm going to go and get another job so I think also if your mental health is taking a hit because of the work that you do, you're not receiving job satisfaction, you're not being adequately compensated because there's no amount of money that you should be paid to put up with someone being a total dickhead to you. Um, 
I think it would be quite reasonable for you to consider what other methods of making money there are and what you're comfortable with. Um, and that also I'm kind of referring to non-conventional jobs. It doesn't have to be going to work at, I don't know, Blockbuster, which doesn't exist. But um, if you if you feel comfortable with potentially not working uh, and, and pursuing your study and, and I don't even know, I would, I would recommend considering ways that you can get through without having to work. For example, taking advantage of what you might be able to get in the way of assistance um, from the government. Because if you are looking at a career path that involves you contributing value and receiving job satisfaction and being a citizen of the world who is happy and confident and not feeling trodden down by some over, you know, person who has an over bigger expectation of their ego than actually is um, realistic, then I don't think there's any reason that you should keep putting up with that. So um, imposter syndrome is real. I'm having it right now while I'm talking to Clementine Ford. Um, <laughs> so I think that when you talk about imposter syndrome in relation to your schooling, is it that you think you've done all this study and then you'll never get a job doing what you love because you um, just aren't really as clever as you think you are because that's bullshit. Um, and whoever's told you that is an idiot. And if you're telling yourself that, then please stop and listen to the fact that you've made all that effort to learn all those things and it wasn't for nothing um, and you are 100% worthy of your own time and that if you want to pursue something and it's important to you and it's important and if other people don't believe so, then give them the flick. I, I would maybe think about if there is someone that you can, uh, uh, saying this knowing that, it's not easy to complain and it, it can actually make things worse for people. So it's, you know, I'm not just going to sit there and say, well, you should report him because clearly that might not be an option. Um, but if there is a system in place where, you know, say you say it is working for a company, I'm not sure what the job is, and there is a human resources team, you can make a complaint or you can explore what it would look like to make a complaint. Um, that should all be so confidential and you should feel so safe talking to your HR team um, as, as someone who you know, has both been the employee who had to go to the HR team and go, this thing has happened to me and this is not okay. Um, a good HR team should be able to give you good advice that doesn't put you in danger either of losing your job or of feeling physically or mentally unsafe. Um, I totally agree that it's possible there is no system in place depending on the size of the business. That person may be the HR team, in which case, ugh. Um, and that I think also... Those feelings of shame, if you would have then say, oh, I don't have a job anymore, you know, telling your friends, oh, I lost my job or I quit my job um, because this person was doing X. And I know that there is, you know, you're going to have some stigma around the fact that you don't have a job, aside from the fact that you may not be able to survive without that job and you have to continue to show up. But um, I think that the concern of not having a job at this point in time is valid and real. Um, but just, again, having a job that makes you feel so bad and so terrible um, may not may not be the only choice that you have. I just wanted to acknowledge as well that uh, the boss's sex isn't specified here, so this could be a woman as well. I think we've been speaking like making the assumption that it's a man. I've been bullied by both men and women in the workplace. Why would you do that, Clem? Why would we make that assumption? <laughs> why would we, why would we assume it couldn't be from all of our lived experience? Oh, no, but I, think horrible... I think it's important to say as well that there are a lot of women out there who uh, abuse their position, you know, in management yes. or whatever, and make their staff feel like shit too. Um, yeah, oh my god, 
happening with me today? It's upside down world. I'm like defending I men. Love I love women. this so much. I, I just completely, I, I, I hope that all the people who are always like, oh, Clem's such a man hater, me, 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 listen to this and realize that, oh, no, actually quite a reasonable balanced person. Yeah, hello, I could have told you that. They won't listen to this. No. Um, but just to wrap that one up, dear career girl, you know, it's in terms of the job thing, that's that's a choice that you may have to make or a decision that you ha- may have to make. And maybe the decision for now has to be that you stay in that job. For you, I don't know. We don't know exactly what your situation is like. But if you do have to stay in that job for um, monetary purposes, then it's really important that you uh, practice a lot of self-care and a lot of self-love outside yeah. of that work and remind yeah. yourself even though you are being met with these messages potentially daily about, you know, that that are damaging your self-esteem, that that is not real, that is not reality, this is not a reflection of who you are. And for as long as you have to decide to stay in that job, you need to, um, you need to counteract the worst impact of that job on you. And whether that is, you know, this might sound hippy-dippy to some people, but whether or not that's just a, a series of practicing affirmations each day, reminding yourself that you are worth more than this, that this job doesn't define you, that you will not be in this job for the rest of your life, and that you're working towards something um, bigger than this uh, may be helpful, I think. But it's it's not, it's one of those situations where unfortunately there's no easy answer. No. Uh, I would also just add to that, that in relation to your schooling, that you at some time will look back on this and realise how much effort you put in and see that you were resilient and that you came through this um, with flying colours. And that can look like a lot of different things, but that you did all of this for yourself and that you're worthy of praise from yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. asks, I have recently been told I have HPV and so many emotions ran through me when I found out. At the time I was single, so I had terrible thoughts of never being able to date again, being so scared to tell someone I have it and regretting my actions in the past that have led me to contract it. I should have been more safe. Anyway, I'm now in a relationship and all is well. He knows I have it and he doesn't care at all. We are even about to start a family. I'm now just scared of having HPV. I'm scared it will develop into cervical cancer. I'm due for a smear test next month and I'm so scared it will show cancer. After hearing on your podcast that you have it too, I wanted to know if you get scared of cancer also. How do you deal with that? I hate waiting. I wish it was just one test and I could be done with it. But the fact that I have to do it every year, I can never get past this and not worry about it anymore. Please help. Firstly, I uh, so just I'll just say for anyone who is listening who hasn't listened to previous episodes, um, a few episodes ago we had a question that dealt with STIs, and HPV came up came up, and I said that I've I was diagnosed with HPV in my early twenties, which seems to be a thing that most people have. Um, in fact, I remember a scene from Broad City where Alana's talking about having HPV and Abby says something about um, something raises something about the embarrassment of it. And Alana says, Abby, at this point in my life, I would be embarrassed if I didn't have it. Um, it is so common. So what I'm hearing from this question is not so much reality. It's, it's that thing of like reality versus fear. So you're feeling deep anxiety about HPV and the potential for, you know, developing into cancerous cells. And those are real fears. I want to honor your anxiety about that. But I also want to remind you that this is, this seems to be 
a response that's rooted deeply in anxiety and not in uh, not in probability. You didn't do anything wrong in contracting HPV. HPV is very common and uh, you know, there's there's no, I mean, apart from the fact that you can't go back and change time now anyway, so there's no point in sort of self-flagellating over this. You also, what did you do wrong? You had sex. Yeah. And I think um, being concerned about uh, the possibility of then the, the ongoing negative consequences of that, you don't deserve that. So you're not being given a karmic hand. Like if you're worried that I'm going to get cancer because I did the wrong thing, that's just, you know, um, uh, your physical, your, 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 the physical response of your body to something that happened um, is not going to be handled by some higher power that's going to go, you did the wrong thing, worried, and now you have to face the facts of what you've done. You know, it is, you did the most responsible thing you could have done. You got tested, you told the person that you love that you have this, um, and look, it's turned out great so far. Yeah, and just a reminder as well that HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection. And you may be feeling, I mean, I'm sensing some shame rooted in that. And I just would like to say to you from the outset, get rid of that straight away. You have no, there is, I mean, I don't think that anyone should feel any shame for contracting anything sexually anyway. Like it's, it's, the shame has no place in this conversation. Um, It has no place. I think that's actually a sentence all on its own. Shame has no place and you you should stop giving voice to it and stop giving power to it. I know that that's easier said than done. But also in any room that you're in, probably the majority of people that you're in the room with have HPV. When they, you know, sort of do the gamut of sexually transmitted uh, infection tests, my understanding is that they don't even test for herpes uh, one and two because uh, it's so common. It's so common in the population. Perhaps you could seek some counseling from a sex therapist or a sexual health uh, worker and really kind of get some perspective on what this means for your life. Because you, you asked me how I deal with it. I don't even think about it. Maybe that's irresponsible of me, but, you know, I get my regular tests done, my regular pap smears, as we all should. And uh, there's nothing I can do beyond that. There's, not, there's nothing I can do to prevent, you know, I could walk out of the house today and get hit by a bus. I hope that doesn't happen, by yeah. the way. Um, no. You will make yourself less healthy as a result of worrying about this. It sounds like you have a very happy life. You are partnered with someone who loves you and who respects you and you say he doesn't care at all. Well, nor should he. Nor should he care at all. This is a part of you and it's a part of your history and it's just something that a lot of people live with very, like, happily or not without, uh, like I said, without even thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so uh, just focus on the fact that you are otherwise a very healthy person. In fact, you're a very healthy person with this. Whatever it is that you're beating yourself up about, just forgive yourself. It is absolutely fine to have sex. There is nothing wrong with having sex. There's nothing wrong with contracting an STI. Practice safe sex for sure. But the other reality is that a lot of people don't want to talk about is that a lot of us just kind of wing it sometimes. We take risks and we take risks knowing that we live with the consequences of those risks. And that is kind of part of what being human is. Absolutely. I think 100% of the people in this conversation right now have done something risky in this context um, and and borne the consequences of that. And as someone who um, pre- has previously contracted an STI, chlamydia in my case, um, and it was treated, but the time of waiting to find out if I had contracted anything else um, from my ex-partner of all people, um, he is really great. Um, 
I understand that feeling of like I've gone to have this test and now I'm just going to be in fight or flight, you know, a full on anxiety mode waiting for those test results. But if your concern is that you're having an annual test, are you honestly going to live 365 days a year or 364 because there'll be that one day where you get the test results and you feel better and then you get back into that cycle of shame and scaredness and anxiety and everything like that. And the other fact is that one in two people are going to be diagnosed with cancer. A lot of those people are not going to have it detected from a regular smear test because they're being super active in their healthcare. It's because they're going to find out when they have the first one that they get reminded to do. Um, And just like someone I know who's only 40 years old, find out that they do have it. And guess what? Radical treatment went ahead and she is now officially cancer free. So even though she did have those cells detected, she underwent her treatment and now, um, and within the space of uh, three months, went from getting a diagnosis to being um, classified as cancer-free. So even if you did get those results, that's not the end of the world either. Just go to your GP and access your 10 free uh, counselling sessions. I think it, it may have, actually it may have dropped down to six now, but either way you'll get some free counselling sessions on your mental health plan and go and speak to a counsellor about this because the anxiety is what is going to eat you up. It's not, it's not the STI and it's not even the potential impact of the STI, it's the anxiety and, you know, you you shouldn't have to live with that. Um, you're going to be fine, little sister. And again, to anyone else listening who has an STI and is feeling some of that associated shame because we live in a fucked up society that shames people for the sex that they have and, um, and the sex that you they know, don't have. Yeah, and doesn't have, you know, adequate and mature responses to dealing with STIs. Like you are all fine too. There is nothing wrong with you. You did nothing wrong. You are beautiful, wonderful people. And this is just a fact of your life. It's just, it's just another fact about you. And, you know, don't, don't feel ashamed. Shame has no place in your life. I'm getting t-shirts. Exactly. But you're going to be fine, babes. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. Please, if you like it, then do consider rating and reviewing it because it helps to push the podcast out into the eyes of other people. And I would really love to have more people listening to our Big Sister advice. Send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and you can support the ongoing making of the podcast at my Patreon account, which is all the w's.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been the incredible April Watson, a body love activist, writer, HR lady, and fashion maverick. April, where can people follow you in your work? I am at the Bodzilla on Instagram and also Facebook. And if you are interested in reading my very boring tweets, she's the Bodzilla on Twitter. And you can also follow the Fat Women Shouldn't series on Medium as well, which uh, people can find that link through your Instagram account too. Absolutely. Um, Anywhere you're looking for me, I'm at the Bodzilla. You are looking to start your own podcast. Is that correct? I am. I've I've invested in a microphone, and uh, this is my first. This is my first foray into a podcast being with you. So thank you very much for taking my podcast virginity, Clementine. Uh, I'm excited to record the first episodes this month to release 
um, what will be called the podcast, where we will be talking all things body love for everybody and also talking about the, the things that we haven't really talked about before uh, in relation to how to love yourself more and real people's experience of loving themselves. I can't wait. I love you. You're amazing. I love your Instagram account. I love what you represent. And uh, thank you so much for being on the Big Sister Hotline this week. Thank Brilliant. you for having me. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.